Gospel of Mark the last several weeks. And if you're not here on Sundays normally, we, we welcome you back. We, we're looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospel according to Mark. And it is just a page-by-page page study. And we'd, we'd love you to come back and be a part of that, discovering who Jesus is, what, what it means to us to follow him, how he lived. So that's going to be happening normally. Uh, so we're going to kind of fast forward today in the book of Mark uh, to Mark 15. So if you want to get ready with your Bibles, you can go to Mark 15. Or if you have a smart device like an iPhone, an Android, tablet, uh, we uh, use the YouVersion Bible app uh, by Life Church. And if you use that Bible app, you can follow along with our notes by going to Menu, Events, and then Find Neighborhood Church in there, and our notes are embedded for you. Have you ever watched a dream die right before your very eyes? I have. Uh, maybe for you, that dream that you watched die was, um, well, maybe it was an education path you wanted to have. You put your hopes on that college or that trade program, and it fell through. Maybe for others, it was that relationship. You liked her a lot, but she didn't like you as much. And you put a lot of hope in that relationship, and it didn't happen. The dream died. Maybe for some of you, it was a career. You've completed college, and you had your sights set on a certain career, a certain way you wanted to work and spend your life, and it just it didn't happen. That dream faded. Maybe for others, it was a, a financial goal. I, I want to be in this place financially for my family, and then the economy tanked, and you watched your dreams dissolve out of your bank account, and you lost that sense of financial stability. Others, it might be family. You'd hope that maybe your family would be that family, you know, that beaver cleaver, that family that everybody else would look at and go, wow, that is an awesome family. And instead, you're discovering that your family's not perfect, just like my family's not perfect. And you discover that you lost that dream, that idolization of an ideal family. I think all of us have felt what it feels like to lose a dream. But you don't just lose that dream. Other things also die along with that dream. For example, when you lose a dream, you also lose hope. You begin to question if you could hope again, especially in relationships. Can I hope again in that relationship? For others, it might be you lost trust, trust in yourself, trust in others who let you down. Confidence, no longer do you feel very confident or, or stable, and maybe you've even lost a sense of identity because you had yourself so wrapped up in that dream that when it died, a part of you died. And your value died. Maybe for others, it's just that sense of there's no future. You have no future plans anymore. You can't look to the horizon because all that lies there is disappointment. Or maybe for some, it's just you've lost that desire to dream again. You've dreamed once, and look where that got you. So you just lost that desire to dream again. You know, the disciples and, and the followers of Jesus, they watched their dreams die literally on the cross. They watched it die. Jesus' life, his ministry, it unleashed in their hearts kind of a, a dream and hope within them as they saw this very different person who walked upon the earth and he did kind things to people and he called the people who seemed to be the unlikely people he would call to follow him. And he had power. I mean, the guy did miracles. He fed multitudes with a small lunch and he brought people that were dead back to life, and he walked on water. I mean, all these things that he did, and you watched. He said, wow, this is a guy who has power, someone with real power to put an end to our problems, to put an end to our suffering, to give us a better future. 
And they were right, sort of. You know, they were right about their belief about who Jesus is, but they were wrong in their expectation about him. And that leads to disappointment. And the same thing happens, I think, to us. If you were to be honest in the room, you can be right about your belief in Jesus. I believe we should believe in him. You can be right about your belief in Jesus, but wrong about your expectations of him. Because some of you, you came to Jesus because you thought maybe he'd fix something for you. But he's the great fixer-upper. And so you came to him and you were hoping maybe he'd fix your family or fix your marriage or, or fix your future. And he didn't do it the way you thought he should. And so when he didn't do it the way you thought he should do it, then you thought, well, either he's powerless or he's uncaring or he's unreasonable. You see, the disciples believed in this Jesus, but then they had wrong expectations about him. Imagine the thoughts that were in the minds of those who followed Jesus when they watched him die. I mean, not everybody was there. Some were already in hiding. But imagine what was going through their minds. Jesus, this isn't the way you were supposed to do it. This isn't how you save people because dead people can't save people. Or they might have thought, Jesus, we had such great plans for you, and you've blown it. Why would you do it this way, Jesus? So when Jesus died, their expectations of him died with him. Most of the disciples fled. They were in hiding. Perhaps they feared their very own lives. They, they feared the same fate. You know, if Jesus is dead, we're next. But there was one unlikely disciple who wasn't in hiding. In fact, he did something with Jesus that his closest followers should have done, but they didn't. I want you to go in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, verse 42. Because it highlights the story of a man named Joseph. This is not the father of Jesus. This is a Joseph of Arimathea, who was a follower of Jesus, though perhaps secretly. He's called a disciple, actually, of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, but he's not one of the 12 disciples. Okay, but look at it. Verse 42, it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So this would be Friday night, close to night before Sabbath, because Sabbath was always Friday night to Saturday night. So sundown to sundown, those are Sabbaths. And so as the evening approached, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, summoning the centurion who asked him and asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So before we can get to Sunday, we have to take a look at Friday. Now, many of you were here Friday night for our Good Friday service where we took time to remember Jesus' death on the cross for us. And we heard from the Gospel of Mark the account of Jesus' suffering and his death and being placed into a tomb. And here is Joseph, an unlikely follower of Jesus. And the reason he was unlikely is because he was wealthy. 
People who came to Jesus were often the broken, the poor, the destitute. And here's a guy who's loaded. He's got a lot of money. He's basically also part of the Jewish Supreme Court, all right? It says the council. This was the council of the Sanhedrin, which, by the way, was the very same council who had accused Jesus and recommended his death. So he's part of this group, secretly a follower of Jesus. And it says that he boldly goes to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Why? Because most criminals under Rome, the bodies of the crucified would be left on the cross, pecked at by animals, crows. And here's Joseph wanting to honor this would-be Messiah that he trusted in. Normally, if they didn't stay on the cross because of the Jewish holiday, Passover, they would be taken down and tossed into a common burial grave for the criminals, a mass grave for those who were enemies of Rome. So he goes and he asks for Jesus' body. Pilate gives it to him. Now picture this, a man who's wealthy, who has the means, probably dressed nicely. He goes to the cross of Jesus. Jesus is still hanging on the cross. Imagine how awkward that would have been to remove him from the cross, a lifeless body of Jesus. He didn't help him get off the cross. Joseph would lower him. Jesus was a mess. I mean, it it wasn't pretty. Some of you might have seen the Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson produced and how graphic that was. That would probably be a very close proximity to what Jesus looked like. Imagine being Joseph, holding in your arms as you lowered it, lowering your dreams. And as you laid that beam down and you began to pry the nails away from his hands and feet, it was as though you were plucking out the very sense of your dreams and expectations that you had in this now dead Messiah. Can you feel what that must have felt like for Joseph? And then with the help of another guy named Nicodemus, we hear about him in John 3, the one who asks Jesus about how he be born again. He happens to be there also. Where are the disciples? Where's Peter, Andrew, James, John? Where are his closest friends? Nowhere to be found, which tells me something about the disciples. They were not expecting a resurrected Jesus. Do you know why they weren't expecting it? Because if he's going to rise from the dead, he kind of needs a body to do that, Right? They weren't there to even claim the body of their rabbi. But they, Nicodemus and Joseph, were. Imagine what they were thinking as they were wrapping and washing the body of Jesus, carrying him to the nearby garden tomb that Joseph himself owned, laying him on the shelf inside the cave because typically it was cut out into the side of a mountain. It was a cave. You would lay him on the shelf inside there. It was a stone shelf. And he would be placed there in the, in the tomb sealed so his body would decompose. And after that decom- decomposition is done, you go back into there, remove the bones, and place them into an ossuary or a container. And it's those bones that stay in the tomb. So here's Joseph, Nicodemus, the two Marys the only ones with Jesus that we're aware of, holding their broken dreams in their hands, not seeing the resurrection. You know, that's got to be difficult because we look at the story of Jesus' resurrection from this side of history. 
where we look at it and go, hey, guys, why are you so disappointed? I mean, come on, he's going to rise from the dead, right? But this passage I just read brings us to the close of Friday. And it sets up the passage, what we'll see here in a minute in Matthew or Mark 16, where the ladies come on Sunday morning. So we have Friday night, we have Sunday morning. But what about Saturday? What do we do with Saturday? And what did you do yesterday? I pulled weeds. I took a nap, I think. I should have washed my wife's car. But what do you do with Saturday, right? I mean, Good Friday, we were here remembering the death of Jesus. Sunday, hey, we're here. What do you do with Saturday? When you think about the events leading up even to Easter Sunday, you've got what's called Ash Wednesday, which happened actually back in March. It's that beginning of the Lent season where people enter a season of fast and preparation as they look toward the Holy Week. And so you have Ash Wednesday. As you get into the week itself, you have Palm Sunday when he comes into town riding on that, that, that donkey and a sign of peace and he's coming in. You fast forward to the week, you got what's called Maundy Thursday, which is basically Passover when, when Jesus broke bread with his disciples and ushered in this great thing we call communion. You have Good Friday, which nobody knows exactly why we call it good, but you should have been here Good Friday to find out why, right? So you have Good Friday, and then you have Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, but what do you do with Saturday? Think about it. Martin Luther of the Reformation said, Saturday is the day when the lifeless body of God laid in a grave. Can you just for a minute picture that? If you had the power to rise from the dead, why wouldn't you do it Friday night a few hours later? I mean, right? Hey, guys, ha look at me, I'm alive. I mean, wouldn't that be a great ending to a really bad Friday night? Wouldn't that be awesome? But you have an entire day where the disciples are hidden away, ashamed, disappointed, disillusioned, because they don't know Sunday's coming. Their Saturday does not anticipate a Sunday. They're not looking at each other, high-fiving in the, in the upper room on Friday night, saying, hey, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I mean, nobody was doing that. What do you do with Saturday? Because Saturday is that place where your faith is tested. You ever had a Saturday? In fact, I, I would probably say it this way. So much of Christian faith is Saturday faith. When you experience those things in life that just don't make sense, Jesus, I I thought, I thought, Jesus, that this is who, what you did for me. And then we're stuck in Saturday. And it's disappointment, it's disillusion, it's I don't understand. And it's that Saturday faith that is so important. Why? Because we don't make decisions about who Jesus is based on our understanding. We make those decisions based on our faith. And even though Saturday was hard and the disciples, to be honest, they had lost faith, they had lost hope. They had. Maybe some of you are in that Saturday faith right now where it's awkward. What do you call Saturday? Sad Saturday? Sad sick Saturday? I mean, what do you call it? We have Resurrection Sunday. What do you call that thing? Because many of us know what it's like for our faith to be there. But friends, we don't believe once we understand. We believe in order to understand. But the disciples lost that belief that they should have had, by the way, because Jesus let them know, hey, guys, 
we're going to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen. He gave them a blow-by-blow account of what was going to happen to him. He would be arrested, handed over to those that would abuse him. He would be crucified. But he said, don't worry, I will rise again on the third day. So where was the crowd to watch that resurrection happen? They were stuck in their Saturday faith. And maybe that's where you're at, Saturday faith. Jesus, I believed in you, but this happened. Where's my hope? So much of our faith is the awkward Saturday, the moments between hopelessness and brilliant hope of Sunday. And if you're there, you're in good company because his closest friends were there, hanging in that balance between hopelessness and hope. And I'm here to tell you today, the story doesn't end with hopelessness. Mark 16, let's look at it as it moves forward. Mark 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, that means this is now Saturday night, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, they went to the market, I'm adding to to this, they went and bought some spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body, but it was too late at night to do that. So it goes on to say, verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday morning, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb And they asked each other, get this question, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? You know what that question is? It's a statement of hopelessness. Who's going to move that big stone away? Because we know it's still there, and we know Jesus is still dead. We have spices to go actually anoint his body. They didn't embalm in Jewish culture. They would just simply put fragrant aromas around the body so while it did its thing, it would maybe help mask some of the scent, okay? That's what they would do. So they were going expecting to touch a dead body, right? Nobody saw the resurrection coming. It wasn't on anybody's radar. Nobody was selling front row tickets to watch the greatest show on earth as Jesus rose from the dead. Nobody was there to even observe the greatest salvation moment of all times. Nobody was there. And history reveals that, friends, that should have been a sold-out show. There should have been at least 12, well, 11. Judas hung himself. There should have been at least 11 people watching and waiting outside. I would have had my lawn chair right in front of that rolled stone, waiting with popcorn in hand for the great thing to happen, right? We should have been those people, but nobody was there. The ladies, they came expecting to find a dead body. Why? Because they were there Friday night at the foot of that cross. They watched their Savior, their hopes and dreams, breathe their last. And with his suffocation, their dreams suffocated. They saw it. They saw the Romans who took that spear and to verify the death of Jesus, stab it into his side. And when blood and water flowed, it was a sign of the the basic heart failure that Jesus experienced as water filled up the lining between his heart and the outside lining, and he died. Verification of his death. They were there when Joseph came for the body and Nicodemus. The ladies were there as they placed it on the shelf in that tomb, watched Joseph and his friend roll the stone over. They saw the Roman guards come and take post because they were there to make sure this resurrection wasn't faked because there was talk of a resurrection. So Roman guards, this would be not just some 
Barney Fife kind of people. These would have been the Navy SEALs of the Roman guards, the centurions posted, and it sealed to make sure no foul play happened. That's why the ladies came, expecting a sealed tomb. And that's what happens when a dream dies. Nothing good can come from this. So what happens? The story could have ended here, right? What if the gospel of Mark closed with, and they wondered who would roll the stone away? What if that's where it ended? You couldn't call it a gospel of Mark because that would not be good news, which is what gospel means. But isn't that where secular culture wants the story to end? Keep him in a tomb, keep him dead. Nobody disagrees about a dead Jesus. We agree he died. People who are skeptical of Jesus, they agree he died. History has proven. A Roman historian wrote about this Christus who died a crucifixion and was placed into a tomb. It's historical fact. Nobody is denying that Jesus was dead. But they want to keep him there. They want to belittle our faith in a risen Savior. Why? Because if there's a resurrected king, you kind of got to deal with that. But if he's dead, no worries. But you know what? The sealed tomb is not the final authority. Aren't you glad? Jesus rose from the dead. He was living. He was breathing. He was moving. He was active even when nobody else believed in him. Think about it. They were all closed away in their room. Something miraculous that none of us know exactly how happened in that tomb. He was alive when they were walking there with the spices to go anoint his dead body. He was alive. Nobody believed in him. Can I tell you something, friends? Look, you don't believe in him today? I understand. Doesn't mean he's not already at work in your life right now. It doesn't mean he's not living and breathing and caring about you right now and loving you right now, even when you can't believe in him, because he did it that day when his own close friends didn't even believe in him. He was living. He was moving. He was breathing. And Easter reminds us that you can try to seal away hope in a tomb, but it won't stay there. And maybe you feel like your hope is sealed behind a tomb. The dreams you had, the things you had hoped for, now they're gone and they're dead. But here's the good news. It can't stay there. That's the story of Easter. We'll come back to that point a little bit later, but the story moves on. Aren't you glad? doesn't end with the ladies wondering. So Mark 16, 4, but when they looked up, and I love that. How many of us need to look up sometimes, right? We get so focused on the junk around us. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, <laughs> okay, had been rolled away. Why was the stone rolled away? Did Jesus need to go out the same way he came in? You know, in fact, I don't think he did because the Bible shows us later when he appears to the disciples and the emperor, he just appears in the room. It's like he just came through the wall somehow. He didn't need an open, rolled away stone. Why? Not so he could get out, but so the disciples could get in. And we'll come back to why that was a critical piece. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting at the right side, and they were alarmed. Of course they were. There's no Jesus body, but there's some angel figure here. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified, five foot ten, 
brown eyes, you know, I mean, they, they are kind of saying, you're in the right place, but you're here for the wrong reason. You're in the right place, but you're here for the wrong reason. And it goes on to say, he's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. They're like, yeah, we saw him get laid right there on that shelf. We saw his body placed there. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, friends, hear me out. I think Aladdin was wrong because this cave truly is the cave of wonders. I mean, think about it for a minute. What happened in that cave? They show up. Something great's happened. All that's left is this burial clothes and an angel. Something happened there that they missed, that they should have been front row witnesses of. Something. So here's the question. Why did Jesus allow the disciples to see the empty tomb and his empty burial clothes before he appeared to them? I mean, you follow the story, guess what? Ladies go back, they tell the disciples, what do they do? They run to the where? To the tomb. They look inside. They see the empty tomb. They see the clothes. And then they see the resurrected Jesus. Isn't it interesting? Because I'm one of those guys that likes to ask questions about Scripture. And I look at that and go, Jesus, why didn't you just rise from the dead and go where they were? Why didn't you just pop into their house and say, hey, guys, look, I'm alive. Why make them go to the tomb? Why make them walk in? Why make them see the shelf where just the burial clothes are? Why? And here's why, at least what I think. Could it be possible that what Jesus wanted was the very place their hope died, the grave? It was over. Dead people don't come back to life. He may have brought others back to life, but this guy can't bring himself back. Come on, who is he? The very place their hope died would be the place their hope revived. Now, why is that important? Listen, because some of you right now, you're living right there in that hopelessness. You're living in that place where your hope has died, and you're kind of wondering, what do I do with this? And here's the good news. Jesus wants you to stay right there because that's where your hope can be revived, right there. Isn't that cool what he does? The place their hope died would become the place the hope would revive. Why? Because you can't seal away hope in a tomb because it won't stay there. You can try to put a truth in the grave, but it won't stay there. You can try to kill the creator of life, but death cannot hold him down. Now, we sing a great song called Resurrecting. You heard the words. Hopefully, you sing along with this. Elevation Worship wrote it. It says this. Listen to the words. By your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. In your name, I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Now, what does it mean to say the resurrected king is resurrecting me? I get the front half. Jesus is resurrected king. I I understand that. But you look at that phrase and go, what does that mean, resurrecting me? What is that all about? You know, I understand one of these days that I will die, and because I have a faith in Jesus, there will be this great resurrection when we get to be with him forever and ever. I get that. Someday he will resurrect me. No, what what this song says is it's happening right now. Resurrecting me is a present tense term. 
So what is Jesus resurrecting? Because he was the resurrected king, what is he resurrecting? And I close with this quickly. The resurrected king is resurrecting my hope. My hope. Maybe, back to that topic, your hope is buried in a grave or your hope is on life support. Maybe your hope is somewhere on that bad Friday or really sad Saturday. Maybe that's where your hope is right now. And you can't see Sunday coming because all you can see is this. Broken dreams, broken homes, broken whatever. But you know what? The resurrected king is resurrecting my hope. Listen to this. Divine hope springs up in hopeless places. I don't know where you're at, but right there in that grave where all their hopes died in the death of Jesus, it sprung alive right there. Because hope springs up in hopeless places, and maybe that's where you're at. Listen, hope can spring right where you are, right in the hopelessness and the brokenness of your life. Why? Because no matter how scary or how stressful life might be right now, by his spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king is what? He's resurrecting my hope. Look at it, 1 Peter 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth that comes through believing in Jesus, right? Into a what? Living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He resurrects hope. Is he resurrecting yours today? Secondly, the resurrected king is resurrecting my purpose. I love this verse 7. Look what it says. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Why does Peter get a call out in Scripture? Go tell the disciples. Wasn't he a disciple? Yeah. Go tell disciples and Peter. Why the call out? Here's why. Last time we saw Peter, he was a miserable failure. He denied that he even knew Jesus while Jesus was being arrested, tried, beaten. People were saying, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no, I don't even know that man. And he even insults the fact he would know Jesus. And Jesus knew it was going to happen, and it happened, and the crow sounds, and Peter leaves broken. He failed his Savior. But on resurrection morning, what happened? Jesus says, hey, go tell my disciples and Peter. The reason I'm calling Peter out is if I just sent you back for the disciples, he might be saying to himself, well, you guys go ahead, but I know I don't deserve that. I'm a miserable failure. No, go tell the disciples and Peter. Why? Because my resurrected king resurrects purpose. He had a purpose for Peter. He's got a purpose for you. And he would say to you, go tell my disciples and fill in the blank with your name because I have purpose for you. Even though you might feel like you're defeated by life, by his name, which is victory, we come alive. The resurrected king is what? Resurrecting my purpose. And thirdly, this resurrected king is resurrecting my life. My life. Ephesians 2 but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions or sins. It's by grace you've been saved. Listen to what John says. This is the words of Jesus, John, recorded by John. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. What a great crossover. 
death to life. Jesus did that. Nobody saw it, but he did it anyway. Nobody believed in it, but he did it anyway. He can bring life in the midst of your death. Why? Because my resurrected king is resurrecting my life. So today on Easter, we don't celebrate hopelessness. No, we know the story. We celebrate a resurrected king who is resurrecting my hope, purpose, and life. Which one needs to happen for you today? Because you might think your dreams are dead. Your hope is gone. But listen, the death of your dream was not the death of God's dream for you. The death of your hope was not the death of God's hope for you. He loves you. The resurrected king is resurrecting you. Your hope, your purpose, your life. So let's pray about that right now. Lord, you know what's going on in the heart of every person in this room. You know our stories. We can't hide that from God. You know. And a lot of us can really resonate with those disciples on that Saturday when it looked like hope was gone. That life is bad and we're just a victim of this. So God, for those that are in that place of bad Friday, sad Saturday, and their faith is on life support, or maybe it's non-existent, I pray that by your spirit they would rise from the ashes of defeat because the resurrected king is resurrecting hope in this place this morning. And if that's you, you're saying, Kelly, I needed this. I needed a resurrection of my hope because my hope was fading. It was broken. It, it was on life support. But I needed this today. Just raise a hand with our, you know, just raise a hand. That was me, Kelly. Thank you. Anybody else? Thanks. I see hands throughout. Thank you. So, Father, thank you right now for bringing hope into their hearts. This is what we celebrate about Resurrection Sunday. You're alive and you're alive with hope. And you give them a living hope through your resurrection from the dead. Thank you for that. Thank you, God, that you're so rich in mercy that you love us even when we feel hopeless. You love us. And I pray that hope would awaken as we trust in you for whatever the future holds. But you're also resurrecting purpose and life. And God, I know there are those in this room today who have not made the choice to follow you, Jesus. And because of that, their life is going in an entirely different direction than they had anticipated. The sin that they deal with is breaking their life and the lives around them. And God, I thank you that you sent Jesus to come on Friday night to die for us, yes. Die for our sins, but he didn't stay dead. That means he has the power over sin, death, hell, the grave, all of it. Maybe you're here today saying, Kelly, I need that kind of forgiveness today. I need that kind of power at work in my life. That God loves me, that he would forgive me of my shame, my brokenness, my sin. And set my feet on a path of life. That's you. And you're saying, Kelly, I need that. Just raise a hand and say, that's me. Thank you. Anybody else? I need that today, Kelly. Anybody in the room? I need forgiveness and life in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you right now that also you hear our prayers. Thank you that it can be as simple as saying, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for my sin. Erase my shame. Thank you that in your, in your life, there's new life. As you promised through what the words of Paul said, that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new is coming. So we step into that new today because the resurrected king is resurrecting our life. 
And I thank you for this new life that I can walk into today. In Jesus' name.